You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Lord, as we sing these songs that are so full of reality and truth, would we not just feel your faithfulness, would we know your faithfulness? Lord, would you continue to work powerfully through your spirit to reveal yourself to us, help us to have eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and hearts willing to respond to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Thank you so much, Sarah and worship team. That was fantastic. Great to see all of you here this morning. There are some of you who are new to our church family. So on behalf of everyone around you, welcome. You're a welcome addition to our community. My name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead pastor. And we're just really glad that you're with us here this morning. So as we prepare to dive into into God's word and really start our mini Easter series here for the next three weeks, question for you, is there anyone in your family who is like an aunt or an uncle or maybe adoptive grandparents who aren't blood relatives, but they're family. Anyone like that in your family? Someone you call aunt or uncle, someone you call grandpa and grandma who you've maybe adopted? Well, certainly true for for our family. And I have an aunt and uncle who were lifelong friends, literally, of my parents. They knew them long before my sisters and I came along. And we've always called them aunt and uncle, and they're very special to us. Um, His name is Uncle Jess, and her name is Aunt Pat. And Uncle Jess um, turned 90 this year and uh, got word about a week and a half ago that he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, just really, really going to miss that man. Just just uh, a very powerful presence in my life and in our family's lives. We put Jamie on a plane last weekend to go be with my Aunt Pat to just help her begin to pick up the pieces and just begin to figure things out. And I'll get to be a part of his service later on this this uh, month. They live in Idaho, so that's that's where the service will be. But just all that being said, you know, when you lose someone, you begin to just remember necessarily so and think back on on memories and experiences and what have you and uh, there's just one experience that's just really vibrant that I'm going to share at my uncle's service and uh, it's it's uh, it goes back to when I was a kid really so um, our our aunt Pat and uncle Jess for most of my life have lived out of the state or in other states. They haven't been nearby, so we haven't seen them super often, but when they would come, it would always be rich and it always would be a great visit. And many of you know my story. Um, My dad was a construction superintendent, so I'm a native Oregonian, but I've lived literally all over the state and every part of the state. And in this season that I'm about to tell you about, we had landed in Bend for about three years. My dad was overseeing a a renovation and an addition to St. Charles Medical Center. Just all that being said, Uncle Jess and Aunt Pat and my three cousins, Keith, Brian, and Karen, came to visit us. And we just loved it when we would get to see them and be with them. My cousins in particular were older than we were, so we totally looked up to them. I totally idolized my my cousin Brian and my cousin Keith. And so as the story goes, um, our house in Ben, um, the gate literally opened up to a baseball diamond, which was just, what a great place to grow up as a kid, or at least those three years I was there. That's where I learned to play baseball, and right next to this baseball field was a playground, and uh, of course, I spent a lot of time over there, and you and I probably wouldn't these days with our kids or grandkids send them over as little kids alone to, to play, but but 
you know, that's, that's what we did back then. So I was over there often alone, you know, you just play with other kids who would show up. And there was this one kid in particular who showed up who I'd never seen before. And I was a second grader and he was like a fifth or sixth grader. So he was a whole lot bigger than me. He shows up and he's not great. I mean, he's a bully, to be quite honest. And so he pulls up and he starts to give me a bad time and comes over and pushes me down. And I was wearing a baseball hat. He took my hat. And there was this one kind of jungle gym-like thing. I never could figure out what it was doing there on the playground, but it was like these three poles that went into the ground and then joined at the top. And it was like, 200 feet tall and so this bully climbs this 200 foot tall jungle gym and puts my hat at the very top where I can't reach it and it's like that is the final straw so I started crying and I go home and I go in the house and my uncle Jess was was he was a big guy he was like 6'5", 240, 250 um, yeah large human and um, but the nicest guy you'd ever meet unless you crossed him and, uh, and I came in and of course he was very protective and very concerned and so he said what's going on and I told him, and he said, that's not going to work. And he said, boys, come here. And so Keith and Brian come over, and he says, you need to make this right. And they say, okay. <laughs> and so they go with me back to this playground where this bully was, you know, messing around. And so he sees Brian and Keith and me coming, and he obvi was obviously pretty good at math because he got on his bike and tried to get out of there. And my cousin Brian ran him down and stopped the bike and said, we need to have a little chat together. And so my cousins proceeded to talk to him and say, you know what, it's, it's not cool to be a bully. No one thinks you're cool. That's not okay. And uh, by the way, we just want you to know we just moved into the area for three days. And, uh, and we're going to be hanging out with our cousin every so often. So the first thing you're going to do is go get his hat. So he went and got my hat off that jungle gym and brought it to me. And then he said, now you're going to apologize. And he apologized. I said, now, where do you live? And he said, well, you know, I live a long ways away. And it, it was, in fairness, the first time I'd ever seen this kid. And are there parks near your house? Yeah, there are. Guess where you're going to spend your time? in those parks. If you ever come back to this park again, if you ever give our cousin here a bad time, we will come find you and this will end differently next time. I didn't see him for the next three years. I mean, he was, <laughs> he's still repenting, right? I, don't, I, I still haven't seen him. I don't know where he went. But I thought, yeah, you know, that's the kind of story where I want to clap when I was part of it. Yeah, you know, the bully gets his due, justice is served. And this story that we're gonna look at today is a lot like that in Exodus. I mean, in many ways, there's this nation of bullies who is, who is enslaving God's people. But there's far more to the story in that. This is more than just a story of justice. It's more than a story of judgment, although it very much is. It's, it's a story of God's patience, God's grace, God's faithfulness, and the freedom that we can only experience through him. So very deliberately, we want to return to Exodus in this story. That's familiar to, to many of you. If it's not, that's okay. We're going to plow our way through it. But this is purposeful because the Exodus points to Easter. And this is going to prepare us for Easter. It also points to the Easter Seder that we're doing here at the end of the week on Friday night. Um, and it's going to prime us and prepare us for that. And by the way, I'm really happy to tell you that we still have room. We usually don't, but we still have room for the Easter Seder. And uh, registration will close tonight. So if you're one of those folks who likes to wait to the last minute, congratulations, you did it. 
You have made it. It is the last minute. If you want to sign up, today's your final day. But we do have room and we encourage you to consider being a part of this because it's just, it's amazing how it points to the realities that we're going to talk about here this morning. So let's just pick up the background here as we go into Exodus and this amazing story. So it tells us that Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died who had come to Egypt. And just for a little background here, Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book in the Old Testament, first book of the Bible, ends with a famine in the land and Jacob and his family, about 70 all told, are told by God to go to Egypt because it's the one place in the Near East that had food. And so they go to Egypt. One of, jo- one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had risen to power in Egypt. He was now second in command, basically the prime minister. So under his protection and under the blessing at the time of the Pharaoh, who invited them in the land, they shared, they settled in a part of Egypt called the Exodus, excuse me, called the called Goshen. And that's where we pick up here. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And um, I just advanced my slide. There we go. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh's plan, this Pharaoh's plan, was literally to work the people to death. Seven days a week, dawn to dusk, all they did was labor. And it was hard, backbreaking, merciless work. And it was intended to kill them. Think of the gulags or the work camps in the Soviet Union in World War II or even before they really um, accelerated the death camps of Nazi Germany, they would have these work camps where they literally would work people to death. That, that's what's going on here. But it gets worse. That's not working. And so, because work isn't working, Pharaoh ups the ante and he gives this order that every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So if he can't work them to death, he is going to commit infanticide and ultimately genocide. He's going to wipe the people out a generation at a time here. And so that's what happens. And those of you who are familiar with this story, Moses is born and to protect him, to hopefully save his life, his mom puts him in a little reed boat and puts him in the Nile and he drifts down to where Pharaoh's daughter is is by the riverside and she sees him, takes pity on him, adopts him. He grows up in the royal courts, comes to age after some 40 years. He sees an Egyptian beating one of his, one of his um, Israelite brothers, one of, the, one of his people, kills the Egyptian, flees for his life, is gone another 40 years. And in that 40-year time, God appears to him, if you'll remember. Many of you know this story, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, a lot of people are at least aware of this story, where God appears 
to Moses in a burning bush. And this is what he says. After God, after God tells him to go save his people, this is how Moses responds, rather. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God has also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of J Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And for those of you who haven't been in our Gospel of John series, over and over again, Jesus says... I am. That is a direct reference back to this. This is where that comes from. He is making it clear in no uncertain terms, Jesus is, that he is God when he invokes the divine name. And so Moses and Aaron return to Egypt, and as they're getting final instructions from the Lord, as he's sending them to free his people, this is what the Lord says to them. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. And again, some important imagery here. And this was just a cultural reality of the time in the ancient Near East. The firstborn son really carried the hopes and the future of, of the family. It wasn't that the rest of the kids, son or daughters, weren't important, but the firstborn son in that culture had special privilege and priority. In an agrarian culture where your wealth was measured by land and livestock, the firstborn son got a double portion. He got a double inheritance. And one of the reasons for that was it, it, um, it centered, it focused the wealth of the family so that there was assurance that the family could continue to perpetuate itself. So all that being said, in the Old Testament, Israel, the, the nation, is often referred to by God as his firstborn son. And basically what God is saying here is, you're going to kill my son? then I'm going to kill yours. And it's some foreshadowing of what's about to happen. So these wonders that are being referred to are often called the plagues that precipitated the exodus of God's people. And these were things that were um, called into existence by Moses and Aaron through the power of God. And these were 10 of them. And this is what happened. In the first plague, the water of the Nile was turned to blood, but as you read that passage in Exodus 7, it wasn't just the Nile that turned to blood, it was all the reservoirs, all the places they had any kind of water stored for irrigation and drinking, it all became blood. It was awful. But Pharaoh doesn't repent or relent. And so then there's this curse of frogs, and all these frogs come out from everywhere. You ever been around a bunch of frogs at once? I mean, it's just kind of gross to think about, but I have some friends who um, have some neighbors who kind of have a little pond area outside their house, and it is frog mecca. I mean, there's millions of frogs there. You come out at dusk, and they're doing their thing, and they're so loud. It's like that itself would drive you crazy, but there's frogs everywhere. And then Pharaoh says that he will let the, let the people go, and then he doesn't. And so all these frogs die. It's this horrible stench, and then gnats come forth. 
You ever been camping where you have these little bugs you can't see that are just kind of making you scratch and itch or you ever had that experience? Probably all of us have at some point. It's just, it's awful. And then flies are just gross in and of themselves, but there's flies everywhere in everything. And then there's this, this plague of most of the livestock dies and most of it does. And then people get boils. You ever had a boil? Okay, enough said. Um, and then hail. Any of you experienced hail in the last three or four days here in the weather we've had, right? This wasn't like that kind of hail. We're told that this hail was incredibly dangerous. It was life-ending hail. And anyone out in the open, any livestock out in the open were killed. I mean, this is, this is awful. And the crops at this point were devastated because of the weight and ferocity of this hail. And then locusts come forth, and they're just gross. And then the land is dark, and then the final and tenth plague, which we're going to get to here in greater detail, the death of the firstborn and what all that meant. Now, I've asterisked some of these, as you can tell. And those specific plagues in particular, it says that God's people, the Israelites, were spared from those. They were unaffected, un untouched by those. It says that very specifically. And each time this happens, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So now it culminates in this 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And so this is what it is. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. And remember, at this time, he keeps saying no, no, no. But after this 10th plague, he will force them to leave because of what happens. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then these are the instructions that were given to the people. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 12th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of the people that are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And look at the specificity of all this because it matters. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So for four days, this, is, this lamb or this sheep is in the people's home. When all the members of the community then must slaughter them at twilight, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And there is a lot there, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But this is what happens next. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this is where the Passover gets its name. 
No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, because the Passover had taken place. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. And we'd seen this prediction earlier in those verses we read. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Now there is a lot there. So let's begin to unpack some of it. But one of the realities that we see in this story across the arc of the Bible, but that's really amplified and illustrated for me here, is that this is all about a God who keeps his promises. God always does what he says he will do. And the Exodus is loaded with promises. We've looked at just some of them. Look at these predictions, promises. When God is talking to Moses and Aaron and, and is preparing to send them back to Egypt to free the people, he promises, I will be with you, which he was. He says, when you, brought, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Horeb, and that's exactly where the people were led to and where the law was eventually given. So that happened. One of their concerns before they went back was no one's going to believe us. Not only did they ask, well, what's the name of you, God, that we should tell them, but they also said no one's going to believe us. Our own people aren't going to believe us. And this, God says the elders of Israel will listen to you, which they did. God promises I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And it happened. And that's just a handful of the promises that God gave them just in chapter 3. There are tons of promises through the 12 chapters we just did a skim over. Because God always keeps his promises. Always, always, always. So Gary asked us this last week, what is one of the most celebrated holidays in our culture? Pretty much everybody celebrates it somehow, some way. Christmas. Not Christmas, not Easter. Super Bowl? No, not Super Bowl. Informal holiday, doesn't count. Fourth of July. Yeah. Why is the Fourth of July such a big deal? Fireworks, right? No, we can go a little deeper than that. We celebrate our freedom, right? We celebrate our freedom as a country. The Passover is an annual 4th of July celebration for the Jewish people that looks back on this historical reality we just read. To this point, for 3,500 years, they have celebrated the Passover because it's their Independence Day. It's the day when they got their freedom. But there's a deeper reality swimming around in all this, especially as it relates to God's promises. The Exodus... The Passover always looked to a more significant exodus, to the greatest exodus, to the ultimate Passover. And for again, for those of you who have been in our John series, we saw this. For those of you who haven't, that's okay. We'll take you there. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says it again. Look, the Lamb of God. Jesus comes 
and he shows us what the spirit-filled life looks like. He shows what right relationship with God and right relationship with one another looks like, but he also comes to die. Christmas is where we celebrate his birth, where he became one of us. Like, not unlike the lamb that was taken into the family's house, which was weird at the time. People didn't do that, but it was done to show that the lamb was part of the family now, that it associated with them. That was looking forward to Jesus. When Jesus would come as one of us and yet would be the Passover lamb, the ultimate lamb who would be sacrificed for us, who would stand between us and death so that spiritual death will never touch those who have received him into their lives as their Lord and Savior because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Easter is the celebration of that. This Passover always looked to that Passover and to that promise that God has given all of us. God keeps his promises so do you. Do I? Do you keep your promises? Because you know how we're most like God? When we do what we say we will do. When we keep our promises. Because God always keeps his. You and I can keep ours. So, a little bit longer with our test drive with that. For those of you who are married, are you honoring your promises? Those of you with family, are you keeping your commitments? The things you've promised to your kids, your grandkids, are you doing those things? Or even in your other relationships with friends, with other people in your life, do you keep your word? Do you do what you say you will do? Do you fulfill your promises? You know, the reality for you and me is that we can. If you worship this God, he's a God who keeps his promises. Therefore, you can. And, and I can. Because he's a God who can be trusted. And, you know, it's easy for us to read some of the specificity of, of the Passover and kind of breeze on by it like, oh yeah, people always did that. No, they didn't. In that day and age, you didn't just kill something and coat the door frame of your door with blood. No one did that. That had to sound so weird and crazy to them. Not unlike it would sound weird and crazy to us if we were told by God to do that. Wouldn't we at least initially go, what? In fact, this was really helpful to me last week for those of you who missed Gary's sermon. He said there's two responses he typically has when he's reading the Bible. One is, what? And you remember what the other was? Hmm, how does that work? And the Exodus, you know, encourages both those responses, I think. Just all that being said, this God can be trusted, even when he doesn't make sense. Even when trusting and obeying him seems, seems crazy. So with that reality in mind, how is he asking you to trust him this morning? What does that look like for you? And I'll be honest with you, there are times in my life when it seemed absolutely crazy to trust God for something. Like, there is no way I can do that. Or honestly, there's no way I want to do that. It's just, I, I just, I'm not sure I believe that. So, so where is that place for you in your life right now? 
You know, my Aunt Pat was telling me a couple nights ago that there's some financial realities she's having to do business with, with my Uncle Jess passing away and going home to be with the Lord. I mean, not only is she alone now, she loses his portion of Social Security and she loses insurance coverage that he had. And she already lives really close to the line and is on a fixed income as it is. And now some of those resources are going away. And she said, Jay, I'm not sure how all this is going to work out. And she said, but I'm choosing to trust the Lord. And please understand that doesn't mean, oh, you know, everything's going to be okay. No, not necessarily. And that doesn't mean those things are going to be restored. That's not necessarily what trust the Lord means either. It means she's choosing to trust him that somehow he's going to provide for her and, and coupled with her trying to figure things out on her side of things that somehow he's, he's trustable even though she doesn't have all the answers. Gosh, when I grow up, I want to be like that because we can be like that. We can trust a God who keeps his promises. And if that's not enough, he's a God who gives us his grace. He extends grace to everyone. Have you let that settle in lately? Have you made friends with that lately? That God gives his grace to everyone? I mean, there are some people we can understand. I mean, I deserve God's grace. And you clearly deserve God's grace, but we can all think of people who don't, right? And we have this case study of Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh, of all people, deserve God's grace? He's trying to kill God's people. He's trying to eradicate them. And yet, does God give him grace? Over and over and over again. We know of 10 specific opportunities. He extended grace to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to respond. But let's flip this. If you're like me, you have a pharaoh or two in your life, or you have. So who is your pharaoh? And are you extending grace to them? What I have found is I tend to draw the line much further back on where I stop extending grace than God does. God's grace is scandalous. Ten different times that we know of, Pharaoh was given opportunity to stop what he was doing, to acknowledge the one true God. And by the way, every single one of those signs, every single one of those plagues was a shot at a false Egyptian God. They ascribed gods to all those things. And every single time God was showing them, I'm the one true God. I am the only God to be worshipped. So, you want to live distinctively in this culture that you and I find ourselves in? Try extending grace to people. People who don't deserve it, which at its core definition, no one does. Despite what we think about ourselves, no one deserves God's grace. You don't deserve God's grace. I don't. And yet we've been recipients of it. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've received him into his life, you've received God's grace, therefore you can extend it to other people. So you want to live distinctively in our culture instead of hating people, canceling people, destroying your enemies? We actually love them. In fact, we are the only worldview that advocates for loving your enemies. We are the only one. And this gets real practical real quick. I think of um, someone who shared with me their story with their ex-husband. He abandoned her and her kids. And it was awful. I mean, financially, 
in crisis for years and years and years because this man literally walked out of their lives and now she's a single parent. It was, it was horrible for her. And I remember her telling me, you know, it was just so hard and so difficult. And yet I sensed and realized that God wanted me to extend grace to my husband, not to enable him, not to say that what he did was okay or pretend it wasn't as awful as it was. That's not what extending grace means. It means I tried to find a way to love him. Did he deserve it? No. But did I? No. But God loved me. So she said, I prayed for him every single day. And she said, you know what, Jay? It's pretty hard to hate someone you pray for. And the years went by, and the decades went by. And one day, he reestablished contact with her, trying to hold it together here. This still moves me to ask her forgiveness. And he went to each of his kids and asked their forgiveness. In no small part, because of the grace she extended to him for years and years and years in praying for him. Now, not all stories work out this way, and boy, do I appreciate and know that. But we are Jesus followers who extend grace. You'll hear us say that every so often. We are a community of Jesus followers who extend grace because we've received grace. We know what it's like. If you've received Jesus into your life, you know his grace. But understand that grace isn't a license for selfishness and sinfulness to continue. It's not a license to do it. It's the escape from it. And ultimately, there is a limit to God's grace. God does eventually judge sin. And necessarily so. And we see that happen here with Pharaoh. And there's this really fascinating thing that goes on. The first five plagues, Pharaoh, it says, hardens his heart. He himself determines, I'm not responding to God. I don't answer to him. I don't care what he thinks or does. But the final five plagues, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart for him. You see, at some point, God stops giving people chance after chance after chance to respond to his grace. And at the end of God's judgment is he gives someone over to their sin. He basically says, okay, if all you want is selfishness and sin and brokenness, then that's what you get. And sometimes he actually incites people to do exactly that in his final judgment of them. And that's what we see going on here with Pharaoh. It says three times that Pharaoh temporarily relents and says after some of these plagues, okay, yeah, I'm gonna let the people go, but then he doesn't. He always reneges. He relents, but he never repents. Repentance is about change. It's not about continuing to do the same thing. And we've all been around those folks who have been sorry they got caught who have regretted the consequences but have had no intention of repenting. Are you like that? Can I be like that sometimes? No. But I I don't have to be. Because repentance is a defining moment but it's also a process and it's it's also a destination and God empowers us through his spirit to actually do that. And at the end of the day, this God must be worshiped. He is the only true God, and he makes that really clear through the events of the Exodus. And this is a one-time thing, and it's an ongoing thing. And the reality is, we all worship someone or something. 
it's interesting when I'm talking with folks, they'll say, well, um, I'm not sure if I worship or not, you know, as we're talking about this sort of thing. It's like that, that, of course you are. The question is not what you worship or if you, the question isn't if you worship. The question is, what do you worship? Who do you worship? We're all hardwired to be worshipers. As the philosopher Bob Dylan said in 1979, y'all got to serve somebody. As another group of philosophers, the Rolling Stones said, you know, I can't find no satisfaction, can't get no satisfaction. We're, we're, we're looking for something. We all serve something or someone. We're all slave to something, really, is other language and reality that the Bible, the Bible uses. And part of the expression of that is we look to good things to become ultimate things. We look to good things, legitimate things that were never intended to satisfy in the way that we want them to. How come when you and I take vacations, they're just never long enough? What's that about? How come we can never work hard enough? How come our relationships never complete us enough? How come sex is never what we're hoping it will always be? Or how come we never have enough money? Or how come we never get enough stuff? What's wrong with us? Could it be we're thirsty people? Hungry people? People who are made for more? You see, what's so ironic about these spiritual realities is they're intuitive. You get this. You totally understand this. You know you're a hungry person. I know I'm a thirsty person. I know I'm always looking for more. But there is a satisfaction. There is a fulfillment. There is a significance that you will find nowhere else and in nothing else but right relationship with Jesus Christ by receiving him to your life as your Lord and Savior. Do you know in the New Testament what Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 is really talking about? Because it's a verse that gets quoted a lot and it gets misapplied. Do you remember what it is? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And so often you'll hear that put into a sports analogy of, oh, okay, well, I can step into the octagon and, you know, go MMA with someone and God's going to give me the strength to prevail. No, that's not what that's about. If you go back and look at what that's about, it's about exactly what we're talking about here this morning. I can do everything through him who gives me strength is talking about contentment. It's talking about satisfaction. The very fulfillment that you only have through knowing Jesus Christ. My friends, what we celebrate at Easter is Jesus is the greatest Moses leading the greatest Exodus for the ultimate freedom and redemption for people who will respond to him. And he pursues us. If this wasn't enough, I probably should have put this up here as another point, but he pursues us. And he's pursuing you and me again this morning. Sometimes it's through a student who, like Bella, prays, of all things, for her friends. Sometimes it's through the, the folks yesterday who fanned out into our neighborhood and, and made impact, made contact, touched 77 different families here in our neighborhood, across the street, across the fence, over there, over there, down the block, inviting them to Easter through our feet training and celebration that we had yesterday. And one of those folks came to the door and told the student, some of our students were leading the charge with this, told the student who knocked on our door, man, I'm so glad you guys came. I felt like God met me at the door today. 
because you came and invited me to this thing called Easter that you say has hope. God's pursuing us. And he will pursue us in ways you may never know. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. And as they do so, one last Uncle Jess, Aunt Pat story. In talking with my Aunt Pat this last week, I learned something that I never knew about my spiritual journey. Many of you who know my story know that my dad's parents were really strong believers and my grandpa and grandma messenger prayed for me for years and years and years. And I always thought they were primary in praying for me as a kid. But I found out from my Aunt Pat that they being lifelong friends of my parents and Jesus followers were praying for me and my sisters before we were even born. Part of my spiritual heritage is my aunt and uncle who God pursued me through their prayers. Man, what do you do with a God like that? You love him. You worship him. You celebrate him. And even when it doesn't make sense, you trust and obey him. And so we're called to that once again here this morning. Now, I know this isn't our traditional communion Sunday. That's the first Sunday of the month where we corporately do it. We always have the elements available off the sides here with whatever Sunday you're worshiping. But how can we talk about the Passover? How can we anticipate the Easter Seder meal we're going to have at the end of the week? How can we anticipate Easter and not have communion today, right? Okay, some of you are with me. So we're having communion today. So I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward, and they're going to prepare the elements, and this is what we'd like you to do. Take these elements and take them back to your chairs and hold on to them because we're going to celebrate what Jesus offers to all of us together. And as you come forward, make this an act of worship. Take these elements to remember when you received Jesus into your life and that he is with you and that he's real, and that he's here with you now. And maybe some of you haven't made that defining moment choice to receive Jesus into your life. I can't think of a better way than as you're coming forward to receive communion, invite him into your life. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to worship you as my God. There it is. And he'll come into your life. So get those elements, and then we'll get to take those together here in just a little bit. So please come forward. Sometimes I forget when we come to communion and celebrating that together, that communion and what Jesus instituted the night before he was to die and go to the cross is built off of the Passover. And so for those of you who will be coming to our Passover Seder at the end of the week, you're gonna see all this symbolism and reality and imagery that always pointed to Jesus. So some might look at what we're about to do and say you're changing the Passover, but actually what Jesus did was fulfill it by what he did. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. So let's remember him together. that wasn't the only part of the Passover ceremony that Jesus changed, the Passover meal. There were four cups that are part of the Easter Seder, the, the Passover Seder, I should say. The first one is sanctification. 
the second cup is the cup of deliverance. The third cup is the cup of redemption. The fourth is the cup of the kingdom. When it came time in the Passover meal to go to the third cup and to drink that together, this is the cup, the cup of redemption that Jesus took and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's remember what he did for all of us together. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that I don't have to settle for being a selfish person, an unfulfilled, unsatisfied person who looks to good things for something that they'll never be able to give me. Lord, I, I thank you with each person here who knows you that we have been freed from the slavery of sin. And now we're slaves to righteousness. Your Holy Spirit, your very presence lives in each one of us. You have washed away our selfishness, our sinfulness, our brokenness. And, and even though we still struggle with that at times, we have a new identity. We are your children. We are empowered by your grace because we've received your grace. So Lord, we continue to worship you now as the God who pursues us, as the God who loves us, as the God who gives us hope. Thank you for all you are, for all you have done, and for what you will continue to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the Passover was always celebrated in families and celebrated as a community. And we deliberately do community together as a community, as, as a family. Because knowing God, loving God, living for God isn't just something I do or you do. It's something we do together, again, as a community. So we have prayer teams who have stepped forward. Any one of us would love to pray with you, but we all have promises that at times we struggle to keep. We all go through seasons where it just seems to make no sense to trust God. And we all have those people in our lives who need extra grace. And maybe I'm one of those for you, I don't know. But all that being said, we do life together as a community. And this is a safe place to do that. So we wanna encourage you to seek the Lord, to, to pray together and to follow him together. Because in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, in this letter, chapter three, verse 17, it reminds us of this reality. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. As you and I go forth from here to, to follow the Lord, to live for him, to live with him, he empowers you by his spirit to trust him, to honor your promises, to extend grace because you yourself have received it. So I wanna pray that we will remember that as we go from here. Let me pray for you and let us pray together. I thank you for every person here. And I thank you that you are the God who pursues us 
And I thank you that you are the God who has extended your grace to each one of us. And for those of us who have responded to that grace by receiving you into our lives, we know what grace is about because we live it every day. So Lord, help us to extend that grace freely and lovingly to others, especially to those who don't deserve it. And Lord, would you help us to trust you with whatever that means for each one of us. Help us to trust you and to obey you and to follow you. And Lord, may we never forget the God of the promise and promises who always does what you say you will do. Lord, thank you for this time to seek you together. Empower us by your spirit and your presence as we go from here. Would we be a light to this world that so desperately needs the satisfaction and hope that we have in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So go live for him. Look forward to seeing you either Friday night and or next Sunday. See you then. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.